There's one data point in the world of responsible investing that's quoted more than any other. It says that over the past 10 years, sustainable investment funds have earned better returns than their mainstream peers. It's great news and it's the message I'm trying to spread with this podcast. But today I want to go deeper. I want to look at how we define sustainable companies and how they've fared in the market crash brought on by the coronavirus. So today, I'm speaking with Remy Briand. He's head of ESG at the global financial data company, MSCI. It's one of the world's leading stock market index providers, and they assess more than 7,500 companies on their ESG performance. Now, Remy lives in Geneva and is an outspoken advocate for the importance of considering environmental, social, and governance factors when making investment decisions. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and whether financial markets will ever be the same again. Remy is a wealth of information and insights about the evolution of ESG investing. And in this conversation, we don't shy away from digging into the more technical details about sustainable investing frameworks and both the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. I really learned a lot in this one. Remy pulled me up on a number of assumptions that I'd made, and it was really valuable to get a broader view into how we can extend the adoption of the ESG approach and expand the breadth of metrics we use to gauge the performance of the companies we invest in. Anyway, let's dive in. The show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com, and be sure to head over to LinkedIn to continue the discussion. Anyway, let's do it. Here's my conversation with Remy Brion. Here we go. Remy, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, John, thank you very much for the invitation. Now, it's Thursday morning for you because you're over in Geneva. Can you give us a quick snapshot of what daily life is like at the moment and, and how is social distancing um, being managed over there? Yeah, so we're, as many people are on the road, we're... Um, uh, all staying at home in Switzerland. Uh, we can go out to get, you know, food, do a bit of exercise, but, you know, generally uh, we're confined you know, within our homes. And now it's spring, so <laughs> there's a lot of sunshine. Temperature is getting better, so there's a lot of temptation to go out. But I, I think generally uh, the Swiss population has been following the, the instruction to stay home relatively strictly, so it's, it's great, actually. And how is Switzerland faring? I mean, we've heard about all the problems in Italy and I think England and, and London are, are getting hit pretty hard. How are you guys going there? The number of infections, you know, is, is, is relatively high relative to the population, but the, I would say, hospital infrastructure and, and the doctors got organized relatively quickly. So generally, I think the, you know, the country is managing the pandemic relatively well, I would say. So, so far, it's been, it's been okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's looking a little bit better in Australia, but obviously we all need to um, play our part and stay inside for a little while longer. But in the meantime, we can watch the markets and, and um, amuse ourselves with volatility, which has been quite a show. You're at MSCI focused all about ESG and MSCI is all about data. So I can imagine demand for your services has has only increased amid all of this volatility. And, and as you watch the data relating to the spread of coronavirus and the reaction of the public and the markets, what most surprised you? Well, I, I think generally, and again, amongst all these 
sort of suffering and, and death. What still surprised me positively is the ability for people to adapt, right, to invent, to change. Uh, we were discussing earlier on the situation in people staying home. You know, people have invented a new life, you know, working from home, you know, homeschooling. We've seen also doctor, you know, by necessity having to reinvent, you know, different mechanism to uh, treat the, the various patients around around the world. You no, know, using scuba diving masks to compensate for lack of, you know, other uh, instruments. Uh, we've seen perfume makers turning into manufacturer of hydroalcoholic uh, bottles. Uh, so we've seen a lot of, of transformation. So you know, being, you know generally an optimist I, I think we will learn out of the crisis when you know the, the pandemic recedes a little bit will operate differently probably not completely differently but there will be a few lessons learned if you want and and some change that will endure in the way we we look at supply chain for sure there will be some changes in terms of you know our uh, maybe our you know, desire to travel may change a, a little bit. I think that there will be a lot of question about urbanization, density of population, how much health investments needs to be done. So I think a, a lot of questions will come after, but I, I think we will learn some hopefully good lessons which um, will help us you know, move to a, a new era. With regard to markets, there's been obviously quite a lot of volatility, which you know, in a sense is always there when there are crises. But with regards to ESG, as, as you were pointing out, uh, we've been monitoring through our indices quite a lot of the you know, various segments of the market uh, or the themes related to ESG, and, and uh, they've been actually quite resilient uh, around the world. Well, that's it. I think this word resilient is a very important one, obviously linked to adaptability that you were talking about, and this is what humans are great at. And looking at the way MSCI defines ESG sort of, you know, in, in its bold mission statement on the website, it talks about measuring the resilience of companies to these environmental, social and governance factors. And I think that's very interesting at this time and really is a good linkage there. So how do you think companies that um, you guys would have rated uh, in terms of ESG, which is generally, you know, things about diversity on board and, and climate change, but it probably doesn't factor in global virus pandemics. So how have you seen them respond to, to a health crisis? Yeah, yeah. So definitely, we we're not assessing, you know, the you know the specifics of the of the pandemic, but but you know the general philosophy behind looking at ESG factors is really at the end of the day trying to assess, you know, which company are managing the various ESG dimension better than others. You know, which one are leaders, which one you know, which are the ones that are cutting corners. You know, with for example the health and safety of their employee. So generally, when you are in that category of an ESG leader, you, you tend to have managed those uh, dimensions better than others. You're, you're more resilient, you're more robust. And that was sort of the postulate, if you want, uh, in, in the approach we followed. Uh, again, I've, I've been running this business for 10 years now. Uh, some of our, my colleagues uh, were um, you know, already looking at these things you know, 15 years ago, and it's been always this, this postulate. Now, what we've been doing also, given that MSCI is not only uh, in, in the business of rating companies, but also obviously to measure through indices, we've been measuring the performance of those leaders. And what we can see is, is that there's been, you know, generally a, um, you know, better performance, not a radically better performance, but a better performance of the leaders. And, you know, we have various methodology, but one 
too simple to understand is, is we take the leaders up to getting half of the market cap. So it's really the better half of the investment universe. It's called the SG leader. So if you measure the, that performance, it has been good in uh, the previous cycles, which was a bull market. And we've also measured it since the crisis. And actually, the trend has accelerated you know, in terms of the outperformance, which again, intuitively, you can link to the fact that, you know, as you were saying, you know, resilience or better preparedness generally or better ability to adapt. And those are the characteristics of those leaders. So maybe that's explained why uh, they've been in relative term pairing better th- during, uh, during this crisis. Well, that's it. And, and, and a lot of the focus has been on climate change adaptability and taking climate action. And, and that's, of course, a challenge where the shifts and the changes that are coming in the future are as unknown as they can be. So I guess being ready and being agile to deal with those issues um, probably put them in a good situation to be able to deal with a blow such as a pandemic. Now, you talked about the frameworks you use to measure those of taking the the top 50% of the best ESG performers. Can you dig a little bit more? I think my listeners are are sophisticated enough to to really want to dig into how the validity behind this statement that sustainable investment funds are outperforming their mainstream peers. You know, it's something we hear all the time, but I'd love, you know, you're in this position of having all of this rich data and, and having some very rich data having come in over the last month with a lot of volatility. So could you talk to us, yeah, in a little bit more detail just about how we can make that comparison um, and how you define the, uh, the best ESG leaders? The logic, if you want, or the approach we've been uh, following is, first, we think that it's very important to identify the relevant issues by sector and not try to have a sort of one size fit all in terms of the assessment uh, across all the companies. And again, intuitively, if you think, for example, you're looking at the dimension of water management. Generally, it's good uh, that you try to manage water, so no question about that. But when you assess, uh, for example, a bottling company, if you operate in a water stress region and you're not you know, efficient and you don't get the permits to uh, um, uh, withdraw water, you have no business, right? So it's a very material issue, which is very different if you take, for example, an advertising agency. That agency may have also programmed to uh, reduce water consumption in their offices, which is good but it's not a material issue. There are other material issues linked to uh, this business. So in order to have an effective measurement or assessment, you need to select the most relevant issue uh, by sector. So that's the very first, I would say, layer of the assessment. And I think the second very important uh, element in in having an effective rating is uh, when you make the assessment, for sure, you need to look at what the company the companies are self-disclosing. Uh, you have to look at what company says, obviously, but you cannot stop there, right? Because if you do that, by the nature of a self-disclosure mechanism, you will always get the good news or the dimension that the company wants to put forward. So you have to look at you know the other side which is the track record the reality of the statement and for that you you need to uh, really really look and use many many methods if you want or different sources to get a, a sense of that reality so for example and i don't know if it's still true uh, but i know that you know uh, several years ago uh, we had you know analysts in our research organization 
that you know went in Australia to the different you know capital of the different state in order to have very specific data on health and safety that were only available if you actually show up in the department that produced them and physically get the report. Now I'm hope today it's all to an API and and sort of big data you know elements, but that's a, an example if you want of looking for. Uh, for example, regulatory databases uh, to get a sense of you know whether companies have been fine, whether there's issue with product quality, these type of things. And we do that around the world. And we think that uh, this is a, a very, very important step. Otherwise, you're essentially being greenwashed, greenwashed. For sure. Well, look, two really important points that I think are at the core of ESG, and that's this idea of it being about the best performers within an industry. Um, and I think that is uh, something that when people first look at it, they sort of say, hang on, that's an ESG list, but you have mining companies on there, you have you know, coal miners. And I think it's interesting to, to stress that no judgment is being made, except that those are the best performers within that sector. And obviously there are certain constraints that they're going to be a high carbon user and they're going to be the nature of their extractive nature is, is going to put them in a certain category. But within that field, there are performers that are better than others and they might want to be prioritized by an investor. Is that sort of the MSCI model? Yes, so, so we, we definitely have a, a signal which you know, try to adif- identify by sector the leaders and, and the laggards. And, and to your point, the, the important thing is that this is an input uh, which then needs to be used in the context of managing money, constructing a, a, port- a portfolio. And then that's where uh, there are other types of decisions that an investor needs to do. Uh, it, it can be uh, that you put more weights you know, across all sectors to the leaders. You can decide that there are other dimensions that are important, like uh, managing your climate profile uh, or engineering a, a shift in capital away from brown into green, and that will lead to uh, significant sector differences. Uh, you can also use the rating in the context of your interaction as a shareholder uh, with, um, uh, with the companies and, and using essentially the, the information as a benchmarking tool to try to highlight to companies where they need to be you know, improving because they are genuinely looking across the whole sector, lagging in certain areas. So, so there's a range of strategies, if you want, that exist you know, in the context of ESG investing. And, and for sure, the rating is not giving all the answer, you still need to do portfolio construction and have a strategy as an investor. And as the space has evolved, we've got this term ESG, and, and I think it has a lot of weight on its shoulders. And, and the space has evolved, as you said, you know, you've been in the space for 10 years and, and others in your team for 15. Do you feel that ESG, this simple three word acronym, do you think it effectively captures the, the full suite of issues and opportunities that it's evolved and, and developed to capture? Or, you know, do you think there might be perhaps, you know, an approach like impact, not impact investing, but, but measuring the impact of a company. How do you feel about the use of this, this idea that's yeah, being used so broadly? There is definitely a, a little bit of a too many concepts, if you want, or too many words. Uh, for sure, there are too many acronyms in our, uh, in our industry. There's probably an acronym a day. But I think what's, what's more important, and to your question about the evolution, where I think investors generally are today, and in particular, the investors that are following uh, an ESG integration approach, is that they're really moving now to be much more precise 
on the outcome that they want out of their ESG strategy. Again, you can call it, you know, another term, sustainable investing. Uh, you can use the term, you know, impact, which is really the, the consequence of your action, if, if you want. But really what is more important is, is to be really very explicit on what you want, right? So, so in the context of a climate strategy, for example, you know, at the end of the day, you need to make an assessment of transition risk. Uh, you need to have a view on how much you want to put of your capital into the green activities as opposed to the brown ones. And somewhat you need to express a sense of targets for your investments. And that's the new thing uh, compared to maybe you know, 10 years ago where people were more in the trialing phase and testing. I think now you have a, a lot of institutions that are very clear on what they want, for example, in terms of how much emission they have today in their portfolio and how much uh, less they will have you know in five years and they can be very explicit and very public sometime uh, with those targets that's a good thing again whether you call it you know that a an impact strategy or an esg strategy or sustainable strategy i think what matters is really the expression of the of the outcome and we're getting there which is really really pleasing that's right i'd love to talk a little bit about how you're feeling the evolution of this space is going and how your clients are engaging with it. I mean, you, you are in Europe and I think really the leaders in this space. Um, Australia is, is, is catching up, but we've, we've been slow. We have a lot of resources companies and I think that's slowing things down. What is the general feeling from your, from your clients? I mean, I, I think the history is there and there's been strong growth from certain groups, but are you seeing um, an engagement with, with ESG as a risk metric coming from groups that perhaps you, had, you were sort of surprised about and that, that they were the, the ones that you thought would be the last to come on board? It's really, I think, um, more of a sort of adoption curve, if, if you want. So, so typically, you start the process by selecting out of your portfolio an area where you think, you know, because you have your own priority that, you know, you need to apply it either to equity or corporate bonds or whatever. And, and then progressively, you start elaborating a, a much more all-encompassing approach. And, and so when we look at the different investors in different countries, they're at different stage in this adoption curve, but things can, and, and by the way, uh, you know, Australia has always been, you know, leading, you know, in this area, the investors in Australia, to your point, you know, companies in Australia may have a, you know, an ESG profile, which is you know, clearly um, more biased towards, you know, mining, etc. But, but the investors in Australia have been looking uh, at these issues for a long time and a number of them are quite far in this uh, adoption curve actually but things can change quite radically so if you take japan for example uh, five years ago japan was as a you know, an investment community was completely ignoring esg issues it was just not there and then in a matter of five years you know through government you know initiative but more importantly through uh, large pension funds like, you know, GPIF, which is the, actually the largest pension fund in the world, taking some action. You know, Japan now is is definitely a, a country where, where ESG has progressed quite a lot, and that in a matter of the space of investment strategy in five years is, is relatively quick. And from the institutional side to the other end of the spectrum, to, to retail investors, how could they use MSCI data to, to help them make decisions about which companies or funds to buy into? 
so typically you know our uh, our services are are used primarily by the money manager but if you're a retail investor really the the discussion today is about your own i would say core allocation so typically when you go into um, you know a bank or talk to your financial advisor a lot of discussion about clearly the allocation you know how much in equity how much in bond and now what we're seeing is that uh, this third dimension which is not talking only about you know risk and return across the asset class but the SG dimension is, is coming in the discussion so today it is very possible to construct a portfolio which is an ESG first portfolio, meaning that the entire portfolio is following a, an element of ESG integration. And you can do that for 100% of, of your money, right? It's, it's not something which for a long time was, okay, 80% of your portfolio was managed traditionally, and then you had token allocation, a little bit of green bond, a little bit of an impact investing fund. You know, we're moving into something which is more that you know your your entire uh, allocation is following the ESG principle. There's a number of of institutions that are offering that now. And personally, I think that in five years' time, it'll be the reference. It'll be the default. Meaning that when you enter uh, the bank or when you talk to your your advisor, uh, you will have to opt out ESG. So really raising your hand and say I don't want ESG. Uh, versus today. Uh, really, you, it's the opposite. You, you need to raise your hand and say, give me an ESG first portfolio. I think that will change dramatically in a matter of uh, five years. Well, that's it. There's a lot, of, a lot of shifts happening in Australia in terms of financial advice, um, a real upheaval and sort of modernizing of the space and a lot of regulations and the legislation is all changing. And I think these questions and, and how a financial advisor raises these questions is a big part of that because obviously some people are still just focusing on on risk and return but now this third element of let's call it you know impact is an easy way to define it risk return and impact is that the way it's um happening in europe as you say this uh, opt-out option is that in place that's not the current state that's where i would i would see the uh, the world evolving what is maybe a, a bit more specific to europe is the fact that the European Commission, you know, has an agenda to promote, uh, if you want, the use of, of sustainable investing. So there, there are a number of regulatory efforts being put in place, uh, which will help, if you want, get to that stage. And and when we look at the regulatory effort in Europe compared to the rest of the world, that is a very specific effort. But but it's not something which, uh, if you want relies on regulation even without regulation you know when you measure the amount of money that is is being following an ESG approach it's been growing steadily across the board whether they are regulatory effort to help or in certain countries there were some attempt to put some regulation you know against but it's generally a reflection that IT in general wants to deal with this issue across the board, including in finance. And that is a fundamental trend which, which pretty much affects most countries. So my sense is that we will see this adoption of um, you know, an ESG-first approach or, or this third dimension, if you want, of also looking at the impact of your portfolio. We think that is, is going to happen. And regulation is an accelerator uh, in certain areas, but it's not an, you know, a necessary condition. And Remy, I guess 
Perhaps on a personal note, this is often discussed in terms of ESG decisions are made from a risk perspective or a values perspective. At, I guess, more the more pragmatic, you know, deeper sort of finance end of the spectrum, are you feeling that the values part of it is coming through, that people are reflecting their own views and their ethics through their, their financial decisions, or is it still very much a simple risk metric? At the end of the process you know, of constructing a portfolio, it's very rare that you, you don't have a mix of, of at, at the minimum, the two dimension, right? So, so you would want to select the best company because it makes sense from a, a risk and return perspective in the long run. And then very likely, you would also want that, you know, you, uh, to check that, you know, at least uh, there's nothing in your portfolio that is in contradiction with your own values. And could be as an individual, but could be also as an institution. You know, if you're the industry pension plan for doctors, maybe tobacco, you know, can be a, pr- a problem and should be a problem. But so that's the values dimension. Now, it's a... We think it's important to make a distinction because you're solving for different problems. But really, at the end of the process, you know, you always get a mix of the two. And, and personally, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's, it's quite good. But you know, the important point in, in talking a bit more this sort of dimension of ESG integration is that it cannot be used as an excuse to say that you have to give up return uh, because you know, at the end of the day, again, it's solving for a long-term assessment of you know how companies are are managed you know how risk is being managed and so that's imminently a financial decision now if at the end of the process you also decide for example to exclude tobacco then you can do it and it's totally legitimate and as a person i would definitely support that uh, but that may be um, more of a decision which which is of a different nature if, if you want Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective. Would it then perhaps be in that um, example with doctors, for instance, that it's the doctors themselves making a values approach and that they then exert, you know, their interests on their investment manager who then say, okay, this is what we need from the companies involved. But then for the investment managers, it's a risk factor because they need to perform for their client. Is is that a a way to to sort of be able to frame it? One of the issue or one of the concepts, if you want, that personally I I think was an eye opener for me is, is this concept of, of externality, which is which is if if you look at sort of the the traditional finance, you know, it's all about making individual buy and sell decision to get an optimal portfolio. And there is very little thought about the fact that at the end of the day, you know, you you also want this, uh, uh, the entire system to work, and you also want, I think, to realize that at the end of the day, as a pension fund a lot of your return are linked to the you know the good health of the economy in the long run and that's where this notion of externality which is in the context of tobacco uh, essentially the healthcare cost you know is being externalized to society by the tobacco company those are concepts which can are very theoretical but the reality is that it's true is is that you know essentially you're creating a problem that you know as a tobacco company you're not paying for and somewhat you know that cost you know is is is, is here and so if you're a pension fund that in, invest across the board or if you're an individual investor that give the money to a manager that invests across the board those dimensions actually should be taken into account because they do impact your long-term return because it has an impact on on society so so there's a logic if you want to avoid uh, sectors which can be quite profitable 
uh, it is profitable to sell an addictive product, but it's still something which, you know, overall will detract return for society, right? And, and that somewhat needs to be, I think, in, uh, taken into account in, uh, in the way you, you allocate money. That's right. I think externalities really are at the heart of this whole issue. And, you know, it's something we learn about in, in Economics 101. And, and we're told, you know, smoking is a good example. Pollution is often used and cap and trade. Yeah, we've got a solution. It's cap and trade. I won't go into the details of that. But, but that has been pushed against for, you know, the last decade. We've seen a lot of political ructions at, at not being willing to put a price on pollution when it would solve this simple problem not a simple problem. It is a technical uh, solution to this problem, but it's it's been held back by vested interests. And I, and I think that comes down to a long-term versus a short-term approach. And what you said about um, externalising social costs, I think that that's very true and that's the short-term approach. But in the long-term, it will come out in the wash. We've seen what's happened to tobacco. Um, and slowly in Europe, there is a price on carbon. Australia, it's been pushed against, but, but we'll see what happens in the future. The failure to price negative externalities, do you think that that's purely a, um, a sort of a, a political a vested interest issue? Or is there something um, perhaps a little bit deeper about, about human nature and, and the convenience of, of burning fossil fuels? This concept of, of putting a, a in particular global price on carbon, you know, it's almost like it's it's been expressed as it's the only solution. And if we don't have that solution, then the problem is never going to be resolved. But the reality, again, because of this societal trend, there are a lot of other mechanisms that maybe are theoretically less effective, but are being put in place at various levels. Could be, you know, for example, when a, a city you know, in Germany, like Berlin, or is, is saying that they won't low diesel cars you know in 10 years in the city that's not putting specifically a global price on carbon but it is a regulation or or measure that you know is uh, indirectly pushing for you know this transition towards a green economy and, and when you start measuring which we did by the way measure the number of regulation that are uh, linked to uh, the promotion of, you know, a shift towards the, the low carbon economy, you, you have actually hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those regulations across the board. And, and, and that may achieve, you know, a similar objective, if, if you want, maybe less efficient. Ideally, you would want a global price for, for carbon. You know, it may not happen necessarily, but I think there will be other mechanisms to, to get there. And, and also, um, you know, very often, the technological discussion is, is a bit forgotten, but I think we're reaching a stage today where it's brute force capitalism that is explaining why renewables are, are increasing. It's not regulation, it's just that it's cheaper. So good old capitalism, if you want, is starting to, to help quite a lot at the moment. So you know, simply you're going to lose money use uh, coal you know you're going to make a lot of money uh, you know if you use renewable you know people are making that choice and it's purely on cost not on, uh, on on belief so 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 that tipping point if you want is is we're getting there uh, around the world and that will also accelerate I think this migration which also in terms then on of transition risk is going to increase the, the risk uh, linked to uh, to fossil investments. Yeah, look, thank you for that, Remy. That's really useful insight and, and important, yeah, to, to keep 
the view broader and not get blinkered. So that's great. And look, early on in the conversation, we talked about the way ESG companies or companies that were, were good sustainability performers have proved themselves to be resilient to an unforeseen crisis like the one we're in at the moment. Now, then looking forward, hopefully the health crisis will be able to, to see our way through it soon. And the market crash, as is most often the case, uh, will recover as well. How do you see ESG as a concept evolving from here on in? Well, my, my, my sense is that, again, the, the trend that exists to uh, use more of these approaches to allocate more money to, uh, to these, these uh, approaches will actually accelerate post the crisis. And again, through the discussion we're having with our clients, I think that view is actually shared by a, a number of investors that, that you know, either they're very clear that they will continue uh, with their plans if they were very advanced and, and, and otherwise, you know, a number of people are moving towards this uh, ESG first approach. So my sense is that we'll see an acceleration actually rather than, um, than a, a stop. And do you think there are any particular um, reactions that companies have taken or any lessons we've learned that will push, you know, a certain industry further forward? I mean, I think the technology companies that we're all relying on that you and I are speaking to each other on right now, I think they've they've been much maligned as being kind of, you know, greedy startups that are just building businesses for their own good, when in fact they've become, you know, vital utilities uh, that have... I mean, the numbers are staggering with what Zoom has done. Apparently, it's increased its traffic by forty times, which is which is pretty staggering. Without really a, without really too much of a stutter. Yeah, are there any sort of elements, specific elements like that, that you see will will rise a lot faster after showing their stripes during this crisis? I think it's too early to sort of get to to sort of some structural uh, conclusion. Personally, I think where there will be some radical rethinking, you know, to, to your point, I think technology, but generally the need to interact in person in the business context. Uh, I think a lot of people will will revisit, you know, the, the need to have in-person meetings. I don't think we'll move away totally from that because we're human beings, but I think supply chain questions will be also um, quite at, at the forefront of uh, how people, you know, again, in, in uh, how companies are thinking about, you know, how they manufacture their products. I think on the labor management side, my sense is that it's going to be more continuity, meaning that the companies that have been quite proactive in the past in, in putting uh, human capital at the forefront, you know, will continue to do so. So there, I think it's more just once again, a recognition that, you know, you have to look at human capital as a, as a key asset for a firm and not as a, an, an asset in a sense you, you need to exploit. So, but generally technology access to communication, you know, the importance of, of the internet access, you know, in, in countries is also going to be revisited. So I think there's a range of dimension. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the need for Health and healthcare infrastructure uh, at the country level will uh, will be revisited. So, so there will be a, a number of questions uh, being asked. How quickly things will change? I think it's a bit too early to tell. That's right. We're still in the thick of it, so we've got a long way to go. But look, thank you for all of your insights, and and you're obviously a deep thinker on this stuff, and I really appreciate it. For listeners to go a little bit deeper, do you have a book recommendation for us? Something you think people could uh, could yeah read a little deeper on this stuff 
Well, maybe not a book because uh, <laughs> we live in short attention span, but five pages that actually are on, on our website, you know, we, we've written them recently, the principle of sustainable investing. Uh, it's really our view on the future of sustainable investing. So, uh, so it's five pages and um, hopefully it will be a, an interesting read for, uh, for your audience. I'm sure it'll be an interesting read for my listeners. Um, I'm sure many of them have already read it. Remy, is there anything else? Like, what's on your um, so that we can get a, a better feeling for for yourself? What's on your side table? What are you reading while you're in isolation? I read a, <laughs> a lot. I tend to read from corporate information, academics, and I, I I've started with MSCI twenty years ago in the research organization. I read a lot of academic paper. I, you know, but that's more. <laughs> because <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's not a recommendation. It can be a bit dry, uh, but a lot on climate and how you model climate and, um, and type of things. Really. Yeah, for sure. No, no, we can tell you definitely, you know, you have the deep thinking and I think that's really useful and, and great to know that you're at the range of the ESG data over there at MSCI because, you know, it's plugged in so widely. So it's great to be able to um, get an insight of, of how you guys are thinking. So I appreciate that. I'll let you go today. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can touch base maybe when the markets are looking a little bit more rosy and, and we, can, uh, we can have more of a positive chat about, about the trajectory and hopefully some of the, the curves, are, well, hopefully the corona curves heading down and the uh, share market curves heading up. Definitely. Thank you, John. Thank you, Remy.